Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When we looked at this text last week, my main concern was to rightly understand verse 45 because of such Terrible misunderstandings that could result if you got verse 45 wrong, which would set everything else in the wrong light. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. One of the reasons people stay away from the Sermon on the Mount, some have even developed very sophisticated theological justifications for staying away from the Sermon on the Mount is that they read in the Sermon on the Mount sentences like this that sound too conditional to fit with the gracious promises found elsewhere in the New Testament. If you love your enemy the way God loves his enemies, then you will be sons of your Father in heaven. And when they hear those if-then kinds of sentences, they say, that, that's law, that's legal, that must be part of the old, that gets put away, and on this side of the cross, we don't believe that, we don't read that. That was for another time and maybe some future time, but not now in Christ. And so I tried to relieve us of that misunderstanding last week by simply saying that what Jesus means is not that when you love your enemy, you make a payment by which you earn entrance into the family of God, but rather that when you love your enemy, you bear witness that you have now the power and the character of the family residing in you and it thus shows you to be a child of God. So when it says love your enemy in order that you might be, it means love your enemy in order that you might be shown to be. It might be evident that you are, that you might live out in reality what you are in adoption and new birth. And I gave reasons for that. But when I ended the message, I ended it on a note of how then did you get in? If loving your enemy is not the front door of the kingdom, that you've got to get open and get in, 
What is the front door of the kingdom? How do you get into the power of the kingdom so that then later, when you hear the command now as a child, you act like your daddy and love your enemies. You don't hear it as the front door of the kingdom. You're in the kingdom. You look all around at the resources and it's not threatening command anymore because of the powers that are around you, under you, in you, helping you. And I answered by saying, the front door of the kingdom is expressed by Jesus in some wonderful ways. Let me just mention a few of them. Number one, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first way of describing the front door of the kingdom is bankruptcy. You must declare spiritual bankruptcy as a part of entering the door. That's your first. You must say, all right, I will never measure up to what this king is like. If he is ever to accept me, it will be through promises like, blessed are the poverty stricken in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. If you'll just own up to that. Second was Mark 10, 15. Where Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you receive the kingdom like a little child, you will never enter it. Second way of describing the front door of the kingdom is the helplessness of a child. I cannot do anything for God. If he were to lay me down and not pick me up and feed me and warm me and clothe me, I would die in a day or two of thirst and hunger on the ground. I cannot move. I'm a little baby. The third text was Mark 2.17. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. It is not the healthy but the sick who need a physician. So the third way of describing the front door of the kingdom is acknowledge that you are sin sick and hell bound. And unless you have a physician with a miraculous gift for healing, you are going to be terminally ill and lost. So there they are. You enter the kingdom as Jesus describes it by bankruptcy, helplessness, and sickness. And therefore, there's not a person in this room who, if you will have it, doesn't qualify. The only reason people don't enter the kingdom is not because the standards are too high, but because the standards are too low. And we want to be high. That's the only reason people don't enter the kingdom. You must hear this first. The command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, or you shall love your enemy, is not a first thing in the kingdom. It is a second thing. The first thing is the kingdom is these, these marvelous, wide-open doors to the helpless, the poverty-stricken, and the sick. To come to a, a supplier for the poverty. To come to a father for the childlike helplessness. And to come to a physician for the sickness. And if you see in Jesus the one who is ready and able to meet that, and you come to him, and you just rest in him, you enter the kingdom. The power of the kingdom moves upon you. 
And in that power, you begin to hear the Sermon on the Mount. If you get it backwards, you don't have the gospel anymore. And you don't have the teaching of Jesus. You have legalism and you have a distortion. It is a wonderful thing when the commands of the Sermon on the Mount become a reality. And they become a reality, not by hearing them first, but by hearing the gospel first. And I closed with this bottom line command or promise last week. The Son of Man did not come to be served. That is, he didn't come to be served by loving or any other way. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. My only hope is to be ransomed for my sin. A supplier for my poverty. A father for my helpless childlikeness. And a doctor for my sin sickness that's so terminal. That's my only hope. And the hope is offered first. So that there was this prostitute in Luke 7 who came into Simon's house. And Jesus, in mercy, was dealing with this This hypocritical Simon, he was offering himself in table fellowship to this man and the man was not getting the message. He was taking mercy as as license and endorsement of his pride and his sin. And Jesus stretched out there on the floor and this woman, evidently who had had some deep spiritual transaction in her heart through something she'd heard or whatever, she came in, she knelt down and she wept. And covered Jesus' feet with her tears and she took her long prostitute hair and she wiped his feet to the gasps of everybody in the room except Jesus. And he said these absolutely glorious words. Words that if you knew who you were, you would count the most precious words in all the world to be spoken into your own ears. Woman. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't that awesome? Your faith, your faith has comprehended, opened your sin sick helpless, bankrupt, moral self and received forgiveness. And now, peace, shalom, wholeness. Go out. Go out. It's all right. Love your enemy is not the first thing. It's the second thing. Okay? We got that straight now. I've tried to stress it for two weeks in a row. Because the demands of the Sermon on the Mount are very high. They are very great. And when you meet them, you can despair if you don't know the whole Christ and read the whole Gospel. What I want to talk about today is who the enemies are here, what love looks like, and how in the world do we appropriate this for ourselves. Let's begin by noticing here in verse 43 that Jesus is correcting... A misinterpretation of an Old Testament command, namely Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard that. Somebody has said that. Some community, some group of people have interpreted 
love your neighbor in Leviticus 19.18 that way. Now I, by my authority, speak no into that misinterpretation. All interpretations of the Bible do not go, folks. If you try to establish Christian unity on saying your interpretation is alright, your interpretation is alright, your interpretation is alright, you won't have Christian unity when Jesus hears this interpretation of Matthew 19.18, namely, it's a plausible interpretation. Neighbor means neighbor. It doesn't mean enemy. So, love one and what's left? Hate. It's a plausible interpretation. And Jesus says no to that interpretation. Not all interpretations of the Bible are right. And then he says, I say to you, I say to you, love your enemies. And the point here is this. Jesus does not have two commandments. Love your neighbor and love your enemy. He has one commandment. Love your neighbor, and I mean, even if he's an enemy. Now, the reason I think that is because in Luke 10, 29, when a lawyer came to Jesus to test him and said, what are, the, what's the, what are the great commandments? And he said, love God and love your neighbors yourself. Luke says, to test him, or seeking to justify himself, he said, uh, who is my neighbor? Give me a category. In and out. A love category and a non-love category. Give me a category. And Jesus didn't answer that question. He told a parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he had two key people. The Samaritan walking down the road. And the Jew who was all beat up and in need on the side of the road. This is the situation Jesus set up to explain neighbor love. And he set it up with enemies. The Samaritans and the Jews were enemies. They didn't have anything to do with each other. There was racial antagonism. There was religious antagonism. There was historic antagonism. And Jesus set it up that way. And when he got to the end, he said, who proved to be neighbor? Not who was the neighbor. It's a very rich parable. The point it made to me in this context was this. Jesus doesn't have two commands, love your neighbor and love your enemy. He has one command, love your neighbor, even when he's an enemy. Now who, in this context, is the enemy? It's a very wide range. Now I want you to see the range in verses 43 to 47, because you might say, oh, I know who enemies are. And name one. And then turn and deal with these people over here as though they weren't enemies in a way that's very unkind, and harsh, and unforgiving. And well, they're not enemies. You need to see the breadth of enemy love in this text. How broad it applies. It's as broad as uh, severe opposition in verse 44 and snubbing in verse 47. Let's look at these. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, everybody knows what persecution is. Persecution is when somebody pursues you with hostile intent. They want to harm you for what you believe or what you've done or something. They want to persecute you. And so it can be very cruel. It can be very threatening to life. I want you to see this because today, 
Severe persecution is happening to the church in many places in the world today. We in America, we live in a Disney land of the world. I mean, this room right here is an absolute Disneyland of power compared to what most of the world knows for worship and for habitation. December of last year, First Things Magazine reported this. In some parts of the world, Christians are still being crucified. Quite literally so. New agencies, news agencies report that five Christians have been crucified since July in Sudan. One being an Anglican priest. The detail is supplied that the executioners used six inch long nails. The Wadi Madani, in Wadi Madani, two Catholic converts have been sentenced by Islamic law to be crucified. Anglican Bishop Daniel Zindo reports that widows and orphans of slain Christian men are sold into slavery in North Sudan and Libya for $15 per slave. That's today. That was last year. July of last year. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, he means Sudanese Christians, love them when they're driving in the nails. Love them. And he means little 12-year-old boy who sees your father ripped out of your house and you hear his screams and his cries. Love him. Love him. David Barrett and Todd Johnson in the AD 2000 Global Monitor last um, February of 93 report like this regarding China. There have been reports of increased persecution, rising hostility and government crackdowns on religion in response to the role of the church played in the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. In Beijing, up to 60 Christian meeting points were forcibly closed by the authorities between January and June of 1992. Many arrests have been made with charges of distribution and receiving Bibles. I only mention that to say, wake up, because... Around this globe today, there are tens of thousands of Christians suffering and some of them laying down their lives just to believe, just to believe and to be obedient to Jesus Christ. So the first meaning of of enemy is those who persecute you like that. Love them. Love them. The next meaning of enemy is less dramatic. In verses 40, verse 45, about halfway through, it says, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So here you have evil people and unrighteous people. And this morning, it was already getting light at 445 this morning. He's making the sun rise on all the evil people in the Western Hemisphere here. From Argentina to the Hudson Bay, millions of millions of people who scorn the name of God. And he made the sun come up on them this morning. And he gave them breath and he gave them life and he held the planet in being. And he restrained anarchy. And he graced them with warmth on their skin and breezes on their faces and green in the tree and grass under their feet. And birds singing in the trees. And you know what was happening when that happened? The heavens were telling the glory of God and the firmament was declaring his handiwork. 
so that you here would hear this message before you got here. And that's what I was praying for you this morning. I looked outside and I said, God, you're already preaching it. Preach it. Preach it. Would you please open their hearts? Don't let them turn on the TV and just start watching stuff. Would you turn on their hearts? Would you cause them to reach up and turn on the dial of the sky and say, do it. Say it. Say it to the cities. Say it loud. Nobody deserves what happened this morning at five o'clock. Nobody. And he made it happen. He just brought it up. And look, he's still doing it. He's still doing it. There are people who didn't give him a rip this morning. They didn't give him the time of day. He doesn't get two seconds of their day. And he's just gracing them, hugging them, caressing them all day long today. They'll go to lakes and they'll take walks and they'll ride bicycles. And he'll be saying, I love you. Come to me. Look at me. I'm a glorious God. I can do this for eternity for you if you'll have me. And they don't pay any attention. We need witness to the witness. The enemy in this context is those who resist God, who disobey his laws, who ignore him. So if you translate that down into our situation, your enemy is anybody who resists you, who contradicts you, who crosses you, who antagonizes you, who makes life hard for you. Which means that the command, love your enemy, has an application to rebellious children, ill-tempered and insensitive and non-listening husbands, neighbors who complain about your dandelions, or whatever. And you may not call them enemies, and they don't call themselves enemies, but that's the kind of illustration we've got here. Most people don't think of themselves as enemies of God. And yet God uses them as illustrations of how he graces people who are not whole toward him. A third illustration of what enemies means comes in verse 47. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? So who's the enemy here? Why why is he using this in the context of enemy love? And the answer is, your enemy is somebody who doesn't love you. If you love only those who love you, meaning you should also love those who don't love you. Or if you greet only your brothers, meaning you should also greet those who are your non-brothers. So enemy here in this paragraph is big. It starts with persecution and it ends with people who don't greet you. Not your brothers. They kind of... As Shabbat, he says, if you only greet them, then you don't know enemy love. So if I ask now in a summary fashion, who are the enemies? Who's this, what's this text about? This text is about anybody that crosses your path. Love them and don't stop loving them, even if they offend you, even if they dishonor you, even if they anger you, disappoint you, frustrate you, threaten you or kill you. Don't stop loving them. And if you just look in the mirror for a moment, the mirror of this word here, you will feel like I am spring loaded to return evil for evil. We feel it in our families, especially people we know best can irritate us the most. And we just just like that. We're returning evil for evil. A harsh word gets a harsh word. A criticism gets a criticism. A complaint gets a complaint. 
We just just like that. We're just wired to return evil for evil, which means this call is for a very profound change, isn't it? Real profound. Second question: What does love look like? We've talked about who the enemies are. What does love look like? Let's go backwards now from verse forty-seven forward. If you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Now, isn't that remarkable? Greeting. I mean, if, if I were writing this or speaking it, I would say, look, if you're going to begin with persecution, let's keep this thing intense. Let's, let's come on. Let's stay on the cutting edge of reality. And if you're going to talk about persecution, let's talk about death and suffering and the real challenges to love. And he ends up talking about whom you greet. Greet. Like in about mm, 15 minutes, whatever. When you walk out of here, who are you going to greet? That's what this text is about. Who are you going to greet? Who are you going to avoid eye contact with? The person who looks like if you've got eye contact, they might say hi, and you don't know if you could talk to them because they don't look like your kind of person. Or a person that you're angry at because they snubbed you once or haven't called you or said something mean about you or let you down and you just don't want to talk to them. So you just look at the floor or find somebody that you know and look friendly. Talk to them. Jesus knows all about that stuff and this text has to do with that stuff as well as being crucified in Sudan. Jesus cares about little nitty-gritty things of daily life and he cares about those ultimate extreme issues of life and death. He's that big and broad. And so I just appeal to you as you consider walking out today, I hope when I'm done, that you will uh, have a big heart with eyes ready to meet strangers or that person that you feel alienated from. There may be more that you should do than greet, but greeting is a good start. That's the first meaning in verse 47. Here's one in verse 45. God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So there is God illustrating enemy love with rain and sunshine. From which I deduce that the kind of love we should show our enemies is a practical need meeting. Rain and sunshine is what you need to make crops grow so you can eat. Paul, in Romans 12, verse 20, following, quotes Proverbs 25 and says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So you don't do that. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. And so you will heat coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. And so the second way of love after greeting in this text is practical. Well, the corresponding thing, if he makes the sun to rise, there it is. If he makes the sun to rise and the rain to fall, and Paul says, if your enemy's hungry, give him food, and thirsty, give him drink, then food corresponds to sunshine and drink would correspond to rain. Something like that. Do practically kind things 
for people that are your enemies. Third and last way is found in verse 44. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Now, I said something misleading in the first service, and a woman stopped me at the door, and she's non-confused. I said, this may be the deepest and hardest way to love because it's possible to do nice things for people while you're seething on the inside and don't really love them, but you know you're supposed to do nice things for them, and so you do the nice things for them while inside you really... And, and you can't do that when you pray. When you pray, God is there and you're there and you're by yourself and you have to have a good disposition to want their good so that you offer it up as a wish to God. Say, I want their salvation. I want their repentance. I want their transformation. I want their reconciliation. I want their prosperity. I want things to go well for their family. I want things to go well for them financially. I want your blessing upon their life. Or I want you to stop them in their sin. If it takes sickness to do it or calamity, stop them because I love them. You've got to really care about people to pray like that. But she said to me, when I became a Christian not too long ago, I had a very close friend, a neighbor, and when I became a Christian and then joined this church, Baptist, Baptist, she dropped me and thinks I'm a wild-eyed, right-wing, fanatical, crazy person. Baptist. And she said, she won't talk to me. We used to be the best of friends. They made us the godparents of their children. And she said, I can pray for her all day. I love her. It's easy for me to pray. What's hard is to see her and to endure her words. I said, okay, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. There are... So I don't think what I said is wrong. It was just terribly inadequate. So I'm adding this second point now that there are that kind of situation where it's easy to pray and it's hard to do. And I said, what are you confused about? Well, I thought, is this supposed to be easy or hard? <laughs> it's hard. Do it anyway. It's hard. It's hard. I didn't mean to make it easy. It's hard to act out love as well as to pray authentic love. And so maybe I should go back and revise that whole thing that, uh, that the acted out love in a hostile situation takes both the inner change and the outward endurance. Now the last thing this morning, then we're done, is uh, to ask, where in the world is this going to come from? Because if you're like me, even though I believe with all my heart I'm a new man in Christ, and I stand justified and accepted before the Father, and that the Holy Spirit lives in my heart, there is enough remaining old corruption lingering, however you want to label it. There's enough of that old stuff that I still return evil for evil a lot in my family. You know? If my boys don't, if they don't use the right tone of voice, my... Mm, mm. Now, there's some good in that, but there's a lot of bad in that, too. And with Noel, you know, if, if, if she, she jumped in the car yesterday, she's out there listening right now. I see her sitting across there at the information table. Jumped in the, she just jumped in the car and turned off the radio. I didn't say anything, but I thought, ask me before you turn off the radio. Isn't that something? 
<laughs> so how in the world are we going to do this? I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be good at this stuff. Here's, here is a piece of the answer and we're done. Matthew 5, 11. This is just go back in the chapter a little ways. Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. So in verse 43 of this chapter, it says, when people persecute you, pray for them. Verse 44. And here it says, when they persecute you, rejoice. And I say to Jesus, if I could do that, if I could rejoice in persecution, or when I'm mistreated by family or friend or foe, rejoice, I could do this. Because prayer and good deeds and greetings would be the overflow of this joy. I mean, if you can, if you can rejoice in persecutions, well, of course you can overflow to people because you got resources. And, but how in the world, Jesus, do you mean for me to rejoice in persecution? And he says, here's the answer right here. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great heaven. Do you see what that means? That means that the command to love your enemy is the command to be satisfied with your reward in heaven. Because the only reason we get mad at our enemies and get angry at people and return evil for evil is because they mess up our lives. Mess them up. Mess up our family. Mess up our health. Mess up our reputation. And we like what they're messing up so much that when they mess it up, we don't have enough satisfaction and resting inside to, to ride on that. Just kind of ride over that and keep loving them back. And Jesus says, what you need in that moment is to be happy in your reward. Rejoice in the midst of persecution, for great is your reward. And we're saying, yeah, but my reward here just got messed up. It just got messed up. And he's saying, so what do you love? What do you love? And I was really struck yesterday and convicted. That's why. That's why I get mad quickly. That's why I respond so fast when my way is crossed. Because my way, I love it. I love my way. I love my peace. I love my study. I love my card work. I love things to go my way. Way too much. And if I love heaven, if I love Christ, if I was satisfied by my reward, if, if like Paul says, my mind were set on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth where my mind is so easily and quickly and rootedly set, if I were like that, then when they crossed me here, I still have a bank account of satisfaction over here from which I could draw to rejoice in this and love. That makes sense? That's what Jesus says here. Rejoice in persecution because you have a great reward in heaven. So my closing, we end where we began. We end where we begin. What's the strength to love? The strength to love is to enjoy your family status and the inheritance that's coming your way.
That's the key. To enjoy it so much. To be satisfied so deeply in things above. Paul said that he doesn't lose heart in this slight momentary affliction because it is working for him an eternal weight of glory. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen because the things that are seen are temporary and the things that are unseen are eternal. And therefore, Paul could actually rejoice in being lacerated five times on his back and beaten three times with rod and three times shipwrecked at sea and dangers in the rivers and dangers in the cities and dangers from false brethren and dangers from everybody and everywhere. And he could be a man of joy. Love your reward. Put your mind in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, as we close, I ask earnestly that you would do this now in this group. And I pray for myself. I want to love Christ and I want to love you and I want to love the inheritance that you've promised me so much so that I can understand with my heart and experience when you say rejoice in tribulation and rejoice in persecution because you have such a great reward. Lord, liberate us from the love of this world that we get so angry when it's crossed. The key, Lord, now is going to be, and we want to sing about it, the key is going to be that you become more precious than silver. The key is going to be that you're more costly than gold and more beautiful than diamonds and nothing that we desire can be compared to you. So Lord, would you come now as we sing and make this real in our lives, I pray.